We're going to be in the second half of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. As this is a passage that many of you know, it is about the rapture. And it's interesting, if you're just reading through the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, you can see the shift that in the first three chapters Paul has been encouraging them about the things that he's heard about them, about his time with them, about wanting to see them again. And then in chapter 4 you see the shift to teaching. And in the first part of the chapters, we looked at a couple weeks ago, he is urging them to grow in their sanctification, being set apart for God. He is urging them to remain pure, that to serve God we are to be pure in this life. And in the last few verses we looked at, in 10, 11, 12, it is to brotherly love. And these are practical teachings to help them to grow, to help them fill in what he had said in chapter 3, that he longed to be with them so that he could supplement their faith and help them to know everything they needed to know. And then he goes right from brotherly love into speaking about the rapture. Why why is that? And I think it's because he knows that knowledge creates power. It's interesting, in our modern thinking of, of that idea, there's a gentleman who lived in France and was thought to be one of the the foremost thinkers of the post-war philosophers and historians in France. And he had this concept of what he called power knowledge, that he didn't see them as two separate things, that it was sort of one word that he put a, a slash in between, is power knowledge. And his idea really was that those who have knowledge gain power, and then those who have power control the knowledge. Sadly, in our world today, in this earthly life, he is often true, and that can be seen throughout history. Many can be seen today that we are, facts are hidden from us. They want to skew knowledge to fit a narrative, and that has been the way it has always been. But one thing that he was missing in looking at this life is what we are looking at, and that is that life, we have eternal life, that we are looking forward to spending eternity with our Father, and the things that affect that aren't driven by people in positions of power today, but by what God has said. That's why in John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to the Father for us and says, God, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And God, through his Spirit, inspired the writing of both the Old and New Testaments, and he has preserved it for us, and we have it so that we can study and we can know his word, and that word becomes power in our lives, not in an earthly sense like, I don't know if I said his name, John Foucault was the, the philosopher, not like he saw power, but it is power in our lives to serve God, to live a life pleasing to him that means something for all of eternity. And so as he is teaching here, and this is what he is doing in looking at the rapture, he is giving them something they need for their growth. So again, the, the big idea as we look at this, at this shift into the rapture, is that knowledge creates power. Let's read through these verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. Paul starts out, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, 
so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage, for the comfort that it does provide, that in the knowledge of things to come, that we can have power to live our lives here today. Lord, be with us as we are in your word. Help us to glorify you through our study and what we learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage, I have a very simple outline. That the, the first verse is sort of the problem. I call it the uninformed. Verse 13, and then 14 through 17 are really the body of his message, which is the information that is needed. And then 17 is, is his, or 18, verse 18, the last verse, our last point is the application. And again, in all of this, I see that knowledge creates power. So we'll start there in verse 13 with the problem, the uninformed. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. It's interesting. I mean, this is one of the main reasons that I kept saying why I wanted to go through the book of Revelation is that, that we need to know the things that God has told us. That there may be a lot of believers out there today that, that look at future things and say, that's not important. It's about living a good life and doing this in the here and now. Paul blows that out of the water here in verse 13. It's not good to be uninformed. Error comes from misinformation. We need to know God's truth in our lives. And really here, I think he's saying that, you know, they are, we'll get to this later. I do think that he has taught them on this before. And what scholars believe is that, that they had been taught and had understood, but then false truths had arisen. And so what they're looking at, not that those who have died, that they'll never see them again, but in Paul and his stressing of that Jesus is coming back and that he's going to reign for a thousand years on this earth and then the future eternal kingdom, that somehow they got to thinking that their loved ones who had died weren't, if they weren't alive when Jesus came to rapture his church, then they were going to miss out on that thousand year reign of Christ. And so that if my dear loved one has died, that I am, I'm now no longer going to, I'm not going to see them for a very long time. And that was causing undue grief in their lives, as we're seeing here. But it's sort of like they, they were taught something, and we think that they were taught about the rapture, and they thought they were all, all of those who believed were going to see the rapture as we see here, Paul speaks about this as, as an eminent thing. And so this is written within a couple years of him being in Thessalonica. And already people had died and they've begun to question, well, what did he really tell us 
sort of like, you know, now we follow GPS to get anywhere, but a long time ago, if you were going to someone's house, you would call and say, how do I get there? And I say, well, turn right on this street, then turn left. You go half a mile, take a left. And if you're following those directions and you make that left turn and there's a road close sign, you go, well, I don't think I got the whole story. <laughs> and I think that's where they were at. And they were, so there was confusion in their mind that was causing grief in their lives. And Paul is writing this to correct that. And again, he, he talks about those who were asleep in Christ. Uh, it was a term, sleep, was used often at that time to refer to death. Think of John 11, where Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus is asleep. And it literally could have meant sleep, but he was obviously referring to Lazarus having died. The word that we get for cemetery uh, in the Greek comes from the, the base word here that is used for sleep, and the cemetery, literally in the Greek, is a place of sleep. And so Paul here is literally speaking of those who have died, who have fallen asleep in their faith and have died. And he says that not knowing about, being uninformed about what is going to happen to them is bad, and it's bad because he doesn't want them to grieve as those who have no hope. And you've probably heard me talk about this before, but I that was one of the hardest parts of being a funeral director. That every year I would sit down across the desk from a hundred or so families, and I would guess 90 of them were staring back at me with blank eyes. And they had no hope that whoever had died in their life, whether it was a parent or a spouse, or the hardest ones where a child had gone, had died, that they are looking at you because everything that they are building their life around is now changed. And there is no hope of ever seeing that person again. And the grief that comes out of that is a life-altering grief. And when he's saying here, don't grieve as those who have no hope, to those without God, when you are grieving, your life becomes about that grief. And however that is manifested, it changes your life, whether that is in excessive drinking or a lack of sleep or irrational behavior. That is an ungodly form of grief. He's not saying you don't grieve. We see Jesus grieve in John 11 at the death of his friend Lazarus, at being faced with the result of sin in this perfect world he created. And as believers, we grieve, but not without those who don't have hope. We grieve in a godly way, glorifying him for the the salvation that we have received, that our loved ones have received. And that is why this truth is important. Bad theology leads to ungodly living, but good theology lives to a God-glorifying life. That's the difference I see here, and as he's looking at grief, of our theology matters to how we live. We need to know God's truth to have power to live this life. Then we move to verse 14, our, our second point, is he goes through the information that he wants them to have. This is the information that is needed to face things like death and continue living the victorious Christian life that he so desperately wants for them. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, I think most of our English translations have the if there. I think a good understanding of that word, it's not that it's wrong, but it would be since. That word there in the Greek is introducing a first-class conditional statement. And so, as we understand, if we believe in Jesus, it's sort of up in the air. What Paul's really saying is, since we believe in Jesus, we know that he's going to raise up those who have fallen asleep in Christ. That even now, 2,000 years later, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are some of the best attested to facts in history. Even more than that, the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus himself predicted it would happen. And it did. And so we have this marvelous truth of Jesus rising from the dead, of defeating death, And Paul says it is on the basis of that amazing knowledge that we can base our hope in our loved ones coming back from the grave, of being resurrected with us. We can be equally certain of those as we are of Jesus' resurrection. Paul tells his readers here that God would bring the spirits of Christians who have died back with him when he returned for the living saints. We see here that fallen asleep in Christ, it's a, it's a saying in Paul's writings and in other places where we're looking to those who have died in the church age, that there have been those who have been recipients of eternal life throughout all of mankind's history, but those that we're looking at here in the rapture are those who have fallen asleep, who have died in the church age. And again, I don't believe that this was new information for this church. That this is something that Paul had spoken of to them. That here as we get some details of what the rapture of the church looks like, this is not a full teaching. That throughout the New Testament, that when new believers were made and they were being taught, that they, they were taught by whoever was teaching them the full understanding of Jesus' return for his church. And Paul here is simply reminding them and clarifying what he had told them. He wants this information to be sure in them. And so he first bases it off the the wonderful knowledge that we have of Jesus' resurrection. And then he continues in verse 15 to strengthen his, his argument that he is making. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So again, he is, he is creating a, a backing for what he is saying, that he is stressing it, that it isn't just him saying this, that this is God's truth. That by the word of the Lord, Lord means that this is what God has to say. That through the things that Christ said when he was on this earth, through what Paul had learned after he was saved, that he believes fully that this is the truth from God. And that is why they need to listen. And then he says that we who are alive and remain. I always say this, I get asked quite often, with all of the things going on in the world, do you think that Jesus is coming back soon? And my honest answer is we are to live every day like it's today. That if Paul 
2,000 years ago could say, we who are alive and remain. He thought he was going to see it. But what he was doing there in living that way and in writing this is living out what Jesus had said, which was, you don't know when I'm coming back. Be working, be living your life for me so that when I do, that I am finding you doing what you should be doing because you don't know when it is. In fact, in Matthew 24, he says that not even he knows, that only the Father knows when his return will be for his church. I covered this a few months ago. I'll just mention it briefly here. This is why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that when we went through the book of Revelation, that we didn't focus heavily on the seven years of tribulation because we won't be here. We need to know what God is going to do and see the things that he is working in that are building up towards that. But that for his church, that he has us here in the church age, glorifying him, spreading the gospel, creating disciples. And then the tribulation is about him bringing Israel back to himself and we aren't there. And I believe all of that firmly, not just in God's purposes that he has taught us, but that Jesus could make it clear that some could know exactly when he was going to return and there was others, us, for whom his return was like a thief in the night. And you don't know the day or the hour. And so even Paul believed that and was living his life like Jesus was going to return any day. So again, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep continue then into verse 16 for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first so the first part of that the majority of that first the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of god there are three things listed there and they're all noisy one of the objections that you will hear from believers who don't believe in a rapture of the church is that other places when we look at the return of Christ there are signs and trumpets and things that announce it and they say well you know there's nowhere else in scripture is this secret rapture of the church and I don't believe in a secret rapture I think it's going to be loud that Jesus is making himself known when he comes back for us, for his bride, through his own voice, to the voice of the archangel, and through this trumpet. That as this is going to usher in the period of tribulation where God is going to allow Satan to deceive the world and his wrath is going to come, that this is going to start with this event that will not go unnoticed, not just in that, hey, a whole bunch of people are gone, but something happened, and now a bunch of people are gone. There are those who believe that these signs, these audible signs, will only be heard by the church as we are raptured. That may be the case. I don't know. But it seems to me, in, as you study throughout Scripture, when these things happen, there is a worldwide understanding that, that something big is going on. But then there at the end of the verse ties into the end of verse 15. At the end of verse 15, he said that, that us who are alive and remain, and we are, should be living like, yes, we will see that. So us who are alive are not going to precede those 
who have fallen asleep, who have died. And then again at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So every time you're at the cemetery, you need to think of that. If a believer has died and is buried, they get a six-foot head start on you. God is not forgetting them because they have passed in this life. That as he comes for his church, he is bringing every believer in the church age with him. And the dead in Christ get that little bit of a head start. That they go first. In verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. I mean, this is our our great hope. Our our hope is eternal in knowing that, as he said there at the end of the verse, that we will always be with the Lord, but that but that knowing that God's love for us has provided his spirit in our lives so that we could serve him, but he's also provided us this knowledge that Jesus is coming back, that all of this isn't for nothing, that we are serving him, we are submitting our lives to him for a reason. And that reason is that God loves us, so he sent his son, and we've believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And in doing that, we have become a part of this church age and that Christ is purifying us like a husband preparing his bride for marriage. And someday he's coming back. And what a glorious, beautiful truth that is. And what that leads to is that we all, all of us that who are alive, all of us who have died, I think of in my own life, my grandparents, several very close friends, my mother, people that love the Lord who are with him now, their spirits and bodies will be reunited and we will be together rejoicing in our Lord's presence. And that is never going to end. That is what we are living this Christian life for. That is why we face each and every day looking forward to serving God and what he has for us. Then we get to verse 18, and Paul's own application. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. To Paul, the hope of being reunited with other saints that have died is what is so important as we, we look for comfort in this life, in the face of death. That our being reunited with Christ is the ultimate and glorious truth, but as God has put people in our lives who have poured into us, who we have been able to pour into, who we have loved in the way that God wants us to love as fellow believers, that that is an important part of this hope that is to come. And that we will get to share in that joy with them. That this reunion of living believers with those who have died is something that should bring comfort. Again, the ultimate comfort is Jesus coming back, but this part of it needs to be there when we comfort each other in the face of death. And that when we do lose someone we love, that we know that Jesus could come back in the next two seconds and I'll get to see them again. Or I may live this life glorifying him and die someday and I too will be raptured and I will get to see people that I knew who were still alive 
as we see this application of comforting one another, I think it fits very well, as we're saying, this, this knowledge creates power and what Paul's ultimate goal for them. And again, in 1 Thessalonians, he repeats in every chapter something about the return of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 19, For who is our hope or crown or, or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Chapter 3, verse 13, So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And this has been Paul's repeated statement to them that what we are doing now is we are doing it and looking forward to his son's returning. And now he goes on to further explain that you don't have to be thrown off by the fact that loved ones have died. They get to be a part of it too. So in this life that we are living, in this persecution they were facing, that the death of a, a loved one, the death of a fellow believer, didn't have to throw them off of that track of living their life for the return of Jesus Christ. Because again, as we talked about a couple weeks ago with how immorality will shipwreck a Christian life so fast, letting our, our hearts and our minds be focused on grief, it turns our thoughts inward into the selfishness that we are all so prone to when we have ungodly grief. And Paul doesn't want that for them. He wants to rejoice in knowing that whether alive or dead, those who have died in Christ, those who have believed in him in this church age, will all be raptured together with those who have died being taken right before us. So as we conclude today, again, this big idea that I've been trying to stress throughout, that knowledge creates power. We need to know the things that God has taught us so that we can live our life for him. Good theology is the basis of godly living. I really see two applications, and they're both based on James 1, 22 to 25. James 1, starting verse 22, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Uh, I once heard a pastor talking about abiding out of, out of the book of John and Jesus, talking about his disciples needed to abide in him and he in them. And he's talking about abiding as like a, you put a tea bag into a glass of really hot water. And the longer it abides there, the darker the water becomes. And that is our need to, to let this infiltrate and change everything in our lives. 
and that we can know it. We can be here on Sundays and hear it, and we can take notes, and we can read it every day throughout the week ourselves, and we can listen to pastors far more talented than I am and gifted and expound on it. But unless we're doing something with it, we're like a person that looks in the mirror and can't remember what they look like two seconds later. So as we, we look at this and taking truth and creating power with it, it comes from what James is saying there. You know God's truth, what he wants. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer. Take it and do. So the first is just, I'm going to copy Paul's application in verse 18, is to comfort one another. In this context, it's comfort in death. And we, we definitely need to understand this and do this. And as we face death in the church and in our lives, that we encourage one another with what we know to be God's truth about the things to come. I think as a greater application, though, the power that comes from knowledge of God's truth should comfort us no matter what we face. That again, if it is death, you keep serving, you will get to see your loved ones soon. And you think of all of they did in their heart for God, and you want to have that same passion for Him. And in serving Him with the gifts that He has given you, and your life, and your opportunities, and everything that is you should be reflections of His truth. The same comes from persecution. As in you know, our church today in America, we don't face persecution like the first century church did, but maybe we're headed there. And if that happens, if we are persecuted for our faith, that our jobs are in jeopardy or our, life, you know, our homes or even our very lives, that we face those things with this beautiful truth of knowing what God has in store for us. And that we live our lives to the utmost for that. Paul brings that out in Romans 5, uh, verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. James also talks about that there in James 1, that the trials and persecution and things in our life that are hard, that we are to rejoice in those, and we can only do that because we know what God has done. If we are not just hearers but doers, we rejoice in facing those hard things. The last passage I'm going to go to for this is John 14, that often in our lives we are going to face fear. We're going to face fear for our families, we're going to face fear of persecution, face fear of the death of someone. But Jesus gives us an answer to our fear, and it is related to what Paul is talking about. John 14, starting in verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, John 14 is 
the night before Jesus is arrested. That as he is facing betrayal, as he is facing a trial, as he is facing beatings, as he is facing the cross and separation from his Holy Father to pay for our sins, his concern was on his disciples not being troubled. And the truth he shares with them there is that pretty soon he has told them he's going to be crucified. But he's also told them he is going to rise again. And he knows that a very short time after that he is going to ascend to the Father. And what he is telling them there, that no matter what troubles you face in this life when I am gone, know that I am gone to prepare a place for you and I am coming back for you. It doesn't matter what we face in this life. As I look out at all of you, I know that some of you have faced things in your lives far more challenging than anything God has ever put in my path. And I rejoice for your examples. The way that you've been able to live out your faith. And know that that glorifies God because it glorifies Him in my heart and that I see that the things that He has put in front of me, I can do it. Because He's promised me I can. And He's promised me He's coming back. So comfort one another is our first application. The second one, this goes along with what I've said, is Paul's theme that he keeps repeating in this book, is that the things we are doing, we are looking forward to the return of Christ. The second thing to remember is that, and that we play to the whistle. We watched, uh, we were looking for something to watch with our older two daughters a week or so ago. We watched uh, We Are Marshall. You know the story, it's about how the football team at the University of Marshall in West Virginia was on a plane ride home from a game, and in its approach to its landing, it crashed, and it killed every single player on the plane, all of the coaching staff that was on the plane, many boosters, athletic director, and they decided to start a team next, the next year, and this is a true story, and they hire this coach who no one knew, and, and his repeated mantra as they're leading up to the season, whenever anyone asks, well, how the team's gonna, how's the team going to do? You know, he had like three returning players. He had to lobby the NCAA to let them play freshmen. That had never been done before. He got some transfers in from other schools, but I mean, he has this hodgepodge of untalented players. And he knows they're going to lose. And it won't be pretty, but to him, that wasn't the point of playing. The point of playing was to get back out there on the field and try to rally the town. And so his repeated statement was not whether they would win or lose, but he said, We will play to the whistle. You are going to see heart and effort in memory of those people that died at every moment on the field. And I remember my own high school football team, that, that was a mantra of our coaches. That was, until you hear the whistle blow, your feet keep moving. Until the final whistle at the end of the game, you don't stop working as a team for what we have. And this is what Paul is urging the Thessalonican believers to do. That until the trumpet sounds... My dad on my mom's tombstone put until the trumpet. That's what we do. Our feet keep moving. We keep serving. We keep working hard for our Lord and Savior who gave his own life for us in the glorious hope of being raptured and being with him. 